United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. At a special council or special convening of the UN Security Council yesterday, the subject, uh, main subject really was the violence on the border between Israel and Gaza. And yesterday, the United States ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, one of those obviously speaking because it's the Security Council, but she said that Iran shaped or Iran inspired militants have been at work in this region and happened long before the administration's decision to move the U.S. embassy in Israel to Jerusalem attacking what she called a double standard by the international community. Here she is yesterday. The United States welcomes a discussion of this violence in the Middle East. We welcome discussing the ways we can cooperate with each other to put an end to this violence. There is far too little discussion in the Security Council on Iran's destabilizing presence in Syria, its promotion of violence in Yemen, its support for terrorism in Gaza, and its dangerous and illegal weapons buildup in Lebanon. All right, if we're going to discuss violence in the region, let's talk about the full perspective of the moving of the embassy and what it means. Joining us on POTUS is Lucy Kurtzer-Oldenbogen, who is director of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Program at the United States Institute of Peace. The Twitter handle is at USIP. Lucy, welcome. Thank you for being here on POTUS again. Thank you, Tim. Good morning. Uh, this is not a surprise. We kind of knew this was coming. The president did it. It became formalized. And what exactly does this mean, in, in, in just in broad brushstrokes? Um, Well, as you said, we did know this was coming. And in the embassy, um, if we start there, um, the um, groundwork was set for that back in December 6th, when, as you remember, we discussed on the show, actually, when uh, President Trump um, announced that U.S. was recognizing uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And in in doing that was breaking with U.S. policy uh, precedent and international consensus um, on this issue, which had basically withheld adjudication of the status of Jerusalem um, until that was decided in uh, negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians. So uh, now we're in a situation, the embassy then less than six months later was opened um, the other day. And what we know right now is uh, certainly uh, it has uh, set back the ability to start moving forward on negotiations. As we know, the uh, Palestinians after that December 6th announcement um, have subsequently refused to deal with the United States as a mediator on this issue, saying that it has um, ruined its credibility to serve in an impartial and effective role. All right, so it was being held out as bargaining chip. What does this mean effective now? Uh, and, and what do you think was the cause of the violence? Was it Hamas to blame? That's what Israel is doing, what the U.S. is doing. Was it Hamas that was in, inciting the violence on the border? Right. Well, so moving down to what was happening in Gaza. Now, this is a case of where you had a confluence of events that weren't entirely unrelated to each other and certainly all relate to the dynamics in this ongoing conflict. But what was happening, um, the, the, what you saw on Monday in the border of Gaza was a culmination of about six weeks of protests that were started on March 30th. Now, they were started, um, they were Actually, an initiative started at the grassroots level by an unaffiliated, non-politically affiliated activist. But that protest movement was um, fairly quickly co-opted by Hamas. The idea of the march was called the Great March of Return. And the the sort of stated goals of it were to bring international attention to the um, humanitarian economic situation in Gaza, the blockade um, on the Gaza Strip that is implemented by both Israel and Egypt. But also, as the name suggests, the activists saying it was also um, a call to return, to return to the lands that uh, Palestinian refugees lost in 1948. And they 
uh, they scheduled or de- uh, designed the protest to, to sort of build up over the course of six weeks and to culminate on uh, May 15th, which is what the Palestinians commemorate usually as uh, Nakba Day, their catastrophe day. Now, that culmination day was moved up to May 14th, which was the date that was chosen to open the Jerusalem embassy because that uh, marked the anniversary of the date 70 years ago uh, when Israel was created. So again, you had this confluence of dates, these confluence of events. Um, we did know this was coming, the Israelis knew it was coming. Of course, what happened, you had on Monday, um, 60 of the uh, protesters, the Palestinians at the fence, killed. Um, and that has launched a, a debate as to whether you know, this could have been handled in, in any other way. Yeah, because they were warned that there was going to be uh, you know, a, a force of Israelis at the border, right? I mean, there was, it was again... I'm not trying to cause blame or point fingers at anybody. I'm just trying to figure out what happened here. And it was not that there was a surprise that the Israelis had guns that they were at the border there. No, for sure. And Israel, the um, Israel had been very clear about what would happen if um, activists approached the fence. And this gets back to the point of Hamas having co-opted the march. There were um, tens of thousands um, of uh, Palestinians who were protesting, demonstrating over the course of these weeks. Those who approached the fence, um, Hamas was actually on the 14th urging people onto the fence. Um, it was probably fairly clear what was going to happen as Israel had made clear. They set a demarcation line of what would happen um, and what would be, you'd be that you would be considered a threat if you were coming within. It was 300 um, meters of the fence. That was most of them, 100 meters of the fence. And so, yes, you had, unfortunately, a very sad and predictable situation uh, play out. And this is, you know, this for Hamas as well, um, of course, was a uh, strategic uh, move as well. It gives, it draws attention to Hamas's cause and really gives uh, Hamas a little bit of a, a credibility resistance boost, perhaps, uh, among the Palestinians at the time when it had been feeling a little bit on the rope. Lucy Kurtzer, Ellen Bogan with us, director of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Program at the United States Institute of Peace. Lucy, I was, you know, thinking about this last couple of days because several years ago I had interviewed Jennifer Griffin. She's a Pentagon correspondent for Fox, and she had written a book with her husband, This Burning Land, Lessons from the Front Lines of the Transformed Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. She had lived there for a while. And one of the lessons I took from that is that the, the players don't really change that much. I mean, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu on and off has been in power since the 90s. And, you know, we're still looking at the people who are in charge of the Palestinians. And and I wonder, I'm trying to look at this in a, maybe in a different way, is that who we, we like to think that gaining from peace would be all of the people of the region. But who stands to lose from peace and who stands to win by maintaining the conflict? Is Hamas one of those who would gain by keeping this conflict alive? Well, Hamas certainly wants to keep the resistance uh, mantle alive. And um, in that regard, you saw some of that obviously playing out uh, uh, in sharp focus on Monday. And, you know, we might yet continue to see it play out um, in the uh, days ahead. I mean, what is clear is the people of the region, the Israelis and Palestinians, are the one that certainly stand to uh, gain from the resolution of the conflict. And the people in uh, Gaza are certainly... Um, um, suffering under the ongoing conflict and our inability, the party's inability, the leader's inability, the international community's inability to bring this to uh, a resolution. There also seems to be a concern about the perhaps, uh, you know, more more movement by Iran to have an influence in the region. I know that some of the Saudi and other Arab uh, neighbors 
publicly have condemned the violence, but have been privately communicating that they are concerned about what Iran is doing in all of this. And I, I don't know if that's directly related to the movement of the capital or movement rather of the of the embassy. But but I wonder if that is playing out also is in a, another one of those somewhat connected events, although it's not directly connected. Absolutely. I mean, all these dynamics are uh, in the mix. There is um, Iranian support that goes um, uh, to Hamas. The other piece to remember here, um, I mean, there are two things that, and you alluded to one of them. Um, you have seen some strengthening of uh, ties and certainly because of shared interest between Israel and Arab states with which it doesn't have formal uh, peaceful relationships because of the existence of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But Israel is increasingly finding common ground with many of these Arab states if they see Iran as the number one shared threat in the region. Um, Again, not directly connected to what we saw on Monday, but you have seen the last couple of weeks really direct engagement, unprecedented, between Israel and Iran across Syria. Iran now has a presence in Syria. You saw Iran strike um, at uh, Israeli positions in the Golan Heights last week and um, Israel strike back. So you do have this dynamic going on in the north of the country, too, which, of course, when you try to connect this to what might happen with a peace process, this doesn't do much to uh, make the Israeli public feel safe um, and sort of in a position uh, to, to think about taking risks with, um, with, with, with a process with the Palestinians necessarily. I have, um, I have wondered, you know, in my own mind, I've wondered whether or not this is something where we have to wait and let generations forget about or to, to, to sort of forget the animosity. On the other hand, that might cause it to actually grow. And over time, the, the separation becomes more and more institutionalized. But it doesn't matter almost just what Israel and Palestinian, uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians say, because all of these other influences are so much a part of this process, it seems. That is true, but I think nobody can afford to wait. And what we have seen um, with this, going back to the sort of narrow focus on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, sitting and waiting, um, things only fester. And you end up with recurring cycles uh, of violence. It's like seeing the same movie over again. You know, we've now seen, you know, Israel with Hamas alone has engaged in three wars, active combat situations uh, since 2008. You have the tensions now. Uh, brewing again uh, on the border. Uh, letting things uh, fester is not the uh, recipe, uh, in, not the recipe either, though I agree with your initial point that this is not something that is going to be uh, sold uh, in the near term and over time will be a generational process, even if a peace, pro a peace agreement is signed or being well before then, it'll be a generational process of uh, peace building and reconciliation after that point. I hear the word generational, I hear you. I mean, I've been talking about this for a long, long time, as I'm sure you've been yeah. studying this mid your life. Lucy, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Lucy Bye -bye. Kurtzer, Ellen Bogan, is director of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Program at the United States Institute of Peace, putting in perspective the interconnected events of what has been taking place in the region after the United States moved its embassy to Jerusalem, and this prompting some protests and a lot of other things that have happened as a result. And you could tell from that conversation that it is pretty complex. Uh, by the way, the Twitter handle is at USIP. This podcast has been brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace and Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.